welcome to Birdcast, a podcast where me, John Deere, and my friend Howard David Ingham examine the work of groundbreaking writer Nigel Neal. This episode, we head to the high seas to battle the French and the British class system in HMS Defiant. Joining us are film academics, Professor Melanie Williams and Dr Mark Fryers as we investigate Nigel Neal's importance to the post-war film landscape, why there are so many high seas adventures at this time, the early 60s, and what that tells us about what's happening in the UK. Is this a breakout role for how Dirk Bogard was viewed as an actor? Is the middleman always the bad guy? Why the British don't do revolutions? And is a ship the perfect stratified system of British class? So we normally kick off with um, a how did you get into uh, Nigel Neal? Because that we start from the assumption that you're, you're fans of Nigel Neal. But with this, uh, with this production, because as we'll discuss, it's not one of the most interesting specifically from a Nigel Neal perspective. It's, it's, we have interest in other areas uh, and that's partly why you, why you guys are on. Um, do you want to tell me, uh, in a more general term, possibly, if, 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 if at all you have a relationship with any with with, with Nigel Neal, Nigel Neal's work? Melanie, I'll, I'll start with you. Yeah, sure. Um, so, oh gosh, just trying to think. Um, obviously, he's a really important figure in post-war television and film. So, if you teach in that area, like I do you obviously engage with his work. Um, so I've kind of taught stuff on the crater mass experiment, for instance, um, but also the adaptations of um, John Osborne yep. plays that he did for, for Woodfall as well. And I suppose it's that process of sort of piecing together different things that you don't necessarily know are that person's, they've done them. So, I mean, what, <laughs> For instance, that that weird sitcom that he did in the early eighties, King, King Vic, which I remember watching, and and I had absolutely no idea it was anything to do with him until much later on. So sometimes you kind of you know connect the pieces retrospectively and and, and think, oh, that's interesting that that's the same person that did that. Yeah, it's 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 a it's an odd outlier on his on on his on his TV career. Uh, we've still not yet done an episode. We're psyching ourselves up to do, <laughs> to, to, to an episode on, on 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 that. But Matthew Sweets agreed to agreed to do it, which might be a good as well. I had that. I think uh, for years before I knew it uh, as a child, I saw um, his adaptation of The Woman in Black and didn't know that was Nigel Neal until I was an adult and that clicked in. Uh, oh, that makes perfect sense. Uh, when I when I was old enough to sort of piece, as you say, piece together the different things that I might that I might know him for. Mark, how about you? Uh, yeah, so definitely um, a fan of Neil. Um, so obviously my uh, research in British film and television um, has much to do with the maritime, but also to do with uh, horror film and television, uh, within which, uh, you know, Neil is obviously a very significant figure. Um, so Quatermass, obviously, uh, it goes without saying. Uh, but the stone tape in particular, I think, is is one of these um, 
you know, incredible uh, sort of lost text in some way. They might not be lost now, but, you know, certainly for, for a number of years, you know, I think that was a, uh, something that was certainly ahead of its time uh, and something that I revisit. Um, and then you mentioned The Woman in Black, which is, which is one of my favourite books, plays, <laughs> TV adaptations. Um, and yeah, you know, obviously, like yourself, watching it when I was younger, I you know, didn't connect those dots. But um, I noticed you didn't say film there. Oh, sorry. No, no, that was <laughs> just, I think just because I, I, I was thinking, you know, mainly about television. And I think he's, yeah. he's very often yeah. thought maybe more in that in that realm. Um, so, yeah. So the, so the woman in black, some of the some of the things that he added to that in terms of uh, sort of technology and those wax cylindrical recordings, I thought was an interesting um, and something very much within sort of Neil Neil's uh, of interest and you know this idea of technology and you know so with with the stone tape as well this idea of the supernatural and and recording um and the other thing as well is 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 halloween three the season of the witch which of course he distances distanced himself from um in the end but i think there's enough of perhaps his ideas about paganism and 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 sam hain and and all these uh, sort of irish origins within it um Mm. That I think you, you you could pick that out as 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 a work by Neil. So all of those things really, uh, personally, I'm, I'm a big fan of and got a lot of interest in. Before all that, um, we're at what 1962 for HMS Defiance, aren't we? So Neil's done his uh, his Woodfall, his two Woodfall films. Um, I think wasn't he asked? Um, by Zaltzman, obviously he was a producer of Woodfall, to do Doctor No, I think, and then said, not, yeah, Ida Fleming's not really me. So I, there's a potentially wonderful uh, alternate universe where Nigel Neal writes James Bond, which I can't quite see, but I'd like to. I know he has conversations with, um, I think it's Jack Clayton talking about what becomes, but then it doesn't go any further. But, becomes, but nevertheless, he's a, so what becomes the, the innocence. But nevertheless, he, he, this, after this space, he's a, he's a writer in demand, a certain extent for film. Is that fair to say? If he was asked to do a James Bond film, I guess, you know, it, you know, even though that wasn't quite the cultural phenomenon it is now, I think, you know, we can still assume that, that, that they wanted a safe pair of hands, you know, with that adaptation. But I also yeah. like the idea of saying no to Doctor No, you know, that's, that's a nice yeah. ring to that, isn't it? And he would certainly become known for sort of poo-pooing cultural icons throughout his, throughout his life if he thought it was, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't the most diplomatic in case of saying if he thought something was, was crap or not even not to his, not, 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 not to his taste. But yeah, I was trying to establish that he's known um, in the wider world as a, a skilled and capable adapter of, 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 of material. So with this, is it right that he, he didn't write the original script, did he? Did he take on, an, I know it's an adaptation of a, of a novel, but it's uh, is it Edward North who does yes, it? Yes, yeah. and he takes Edward North's script. Is that right? Uh, as far as I know, yeah. Okay. Uh, 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 you know the the history of that's a little murky, and also okay. when it comes to talking about adaptations, you don't really know exactly, um, you know, who did what or who changed what um, without seeing those original um, files. Um, but I, I think you could possibly see more of, uh, perhaps more of North um, or more of Tilsley in the final product. Um, 
you might disagree, but I don't see much that that that's particularly Neil about it um, in the final product in the final film. And again, that there might have been omissions um, and you know compromises along the way. Uh, that's how I view that anyway. Yeah. But I mean, North was known. He'd done. He'd done Seek the Bismarck with the same director, yes. with, with, with 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 Lewis Gilbert. Yeah, he's. I know he got he got he won an Oscar for Patton. Uh, I yeah. think he did Day the Earth Stood Still. Yeah. he's known for sort of big spectaculars in Hollywood. Yeah. Um, do we know why Neil was brought in? Presumably, there was there was some deficiencies in the script. Or uh, no, I, I unfortunately I don't know why um, he was or, or or at what stage he was he was brought on. Unfortunately. Um, okay then, if yeah. we're if we're looking at at least you know that it's got a two significant um, uh, credits in in uh, in common with say Sink the Bismarck and presumably Damn the Defiant as in the US title is a is an attempt mm. to 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 recreate that. I don't know how far they could have gone. Tickle the victory. I don't know where it could, but yeah, rather than just the rather the, the rather flat HMS HMS, which yeah. was a bit meant more to more to the Brits anyway. Um, no, my, my first thought in watching this, and we we'll, this is why well, see why I'm, I, I'm going with this in, in terms of context was as a kid I saw Carry On Jack. I know that was Carry On's first first costume drama, uh, and the first ten minutes of Carry On Jack, bar the recreation of the death of the death of Nelson, the first ten minutes of Carry On Jack is just the same as the first 10 minutes of, of, of HMS Defiant, pretty much with the uh, with the, the, the press gang scenes. So, yeah. and if you're choosing one film, as I watched through it, the, the age that um, something like Carry On Jack is, 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 is egging, it's, mm. it, it's, it's this film. But is it this film in particular, or is this film the type of film that's being made in the early 60s? Uh, and, and if so, why? Mel, do you want to take that? Or? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, uh, I think in terms of a sort of maritime cycle of filmmaking, obviously Mark's the best person to to answer that. But yeah, I mean, uh, I suppose you've got things like the Mutiny on the Bounty, you've got this, um, and you've got an interest in certain kinds of military spectacle and often that's harking back to the second world war as with um sink the bismarck and the incredibly successful war films that have been incredibly popular in britain in the 1950s but sometimes that goes further into the past and i think the historical epic of which these maritime films are a sort of small part is a really significant thing that's going on in filmmaking I think it's also answering that need for spectacle you know this is a, a cinemascope production you want something big and colorful and visually impactful to fill the screen and one of the ways that British cinema in particular has addressed that is through different kinds of historical epic and so this film kind of fits in with that. Is, is it too simplistic to say at the end of the 50s, start of the 60s, we've had enough of sort of post-war war, war films, if you like, uh, but austerity Britain is still not yet reached the, 
moved into the 60s um, and Britain is still harking back to sort of uh, past glories or is uh, or is that basically a basis of saying it's the it's the 18th 19th century it's it's the Royal Navy it's 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 Britain working like it's 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 shooting the French and the Spanish it's something that everyone can get behind in a in a slightly drab country yeah, no, I think there's definitely, sorry, I think there's definitely some some truth in that. Um, when when you think about changes, you know, within uh, filmmaking cultures, they don't happen overnight. Um, although this period marks the, the time in which, um, although these films are still being made, things like Sink the Bismarck, which are harking back to World War II, harking back to those particularly naval victories, uh, but not exclusively, but at the same time as this is being made, uh, of course, some of the same uh, people involved, so uh, Anthony Quayle and uh, Alec Guinness are, are involved in things like uh, Lawrence of Arabia, which, of course, uh, casts a very different light on um, previous military endeavour and, and previous military heroes. Um, so there's 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 not a, a kind of overnight revolution, I would say, and I don't I'm sure Mel will back me up on that. Um, so there's a continuity of tradition. These films are still being made, um, but around about this time, particularly from a, a naval standpoint, um, in terms of looking at the Napoleonic era, um, very rare actually. Um, and you mentioned Carry On Jack, which is possibly the last which came after this film and used some of the same props and sets that were left over from this film. And as you say, clearly um, used, uh, you know, some of the plot mechanisms um, in order to, uh, you know, build its its comedy on. Um, so there is a sense that um, that things were changing, but it, it wasn't a, a kind of overnight revolution um so yes yeah, certainly what you say is true um but i think you know th th with filmmaking cultures these things happen very slowly just in terms of the way that 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 films have a have a long gestation period uh, you know from their inception their production and post-production to their release um so that's worth bearing in mind definitely are we then seeing a movement from general then feel good about conflict or feel good about the country as, as it were in the historical context and more something slightly subversive in the justifications of mutiny and the treatment of the you know of the and then you know, by through that the class system yeah That's, i think yeah, yeah. yeah i think definitely and you know i think what was what was the case with with this film with hms defiant uh, and Billy Budd, the adaptation by Peter Yusnoff that came out at the same time, and also uh, Mutiny on the Bounty, which obviously was an American film, but it, it, you know, it deals with you know, subversion in the ranks of the Navy. They, they all came along at this particular time. And you know, there's, there's certainly a difference between um, you know, the, the representation of the Navy in earlier films, which was slightly more un uncomplicated and patriotic, um, and and a film like HMS Defiant, which, although it does return to those notions and does um, in some ways valorise, uh, you know, the Britain and and its naval success and its naval history and heritage, it does shine a light, you know, onto those uh, er areas that that uh, you know sometimes forgotten. 
or at least subsumed underneath the more powerful myths such as Trafalgar, uh, you know, and the victory there that, that came a few years later. Um, whereas the Spithead Mutiny, you know, it's kind of one of those um, one of those things you don't want to talk about so much, you know, within uh, within naval history and cultural representations of it. But but certainly at this time we start to see that, uh, if not being, um, you know, repudiated, then certainly investigated and certainly uh, you know talked about. This was a true story, then. No, but it is based on. Um, on the true story of the of the Spithead mutiny, right? Okay, um, and, you know, which was a, a successful mutiny in terms of um, it was you know a, across the fleet, and certain concessions were made, um, and whereas the, you know there was a very strict hierarchy and a strict a code of if you question your superiors, then you know this is a hanging offence. This is uh, this is treason. Um, you know there were there were uh, concessions made you know, within that time period. So I think Tilsley in his original novel particularly um, chose that period because there is this uh, slightly more opaque um, view of, of naval history. And again, uh, with Billy Budd, that's certainly something that Henry Melville did, um, you know, in the same time period. Who were um, GW films uh, and why were they, why were they making Yes, do you know? Um, well, the the producer uh, John Brayburn mm -hmm. and um, his associate Richard Goodwin are the kind of most important figures behind this, and and behind lots of really important British productions for the next sort of twenty years or so. Um, Brayburn's a, a very a very interesting figure. I think um, it's very well-connected. Um, I, I think, I probably need to check this, I think he was, his father-in-law was Lord Mountbatten, is that right? Yeah, that's correct, yeah. 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 Wow, yeah. okay. Well, so, he, he came from aristocratic stock. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, he, and he was from aristocratic stock himself. So when he married Mountbatten's daughter, they were both Lord and Lady. Um, not through marriage, but just genuinely, they had their own hereditary titles. So, so he was someone who you know, is very much part of that old aristocratic stock, which is interesting. That, that also, that's an interesting parallel with um, Dirk Bogart's character. That yes. Everyone's, that every, everyone's, yes. Scared, everyone's scared of him because he's got he's got family he's got family in high places. And I mean, Brayborn's like I, I, I know him from like uh, Houston films. Uh, and things he went he, he he went there as well so it's um it was was this just uh seen as a because uh, obviously a lot of money has been it's seemingly you know it's the first time i think neil said he's like never had something at that point in his career where there's been so much money on a, on a you know, production this was something they will had they been established for a while and willing to sort of throw money at a swashbuckler or or was this just uh for risk than that i think it, one of the things that um one of the production trends from the sort of 50s onwards was the idea of Hollywood runaway production. So as a way of kind of using up your, your frozen assets in different countries overseas, but also okay. taking advantage of uh, kind of advantageous production conditions and also tax benefits like the ED levy, which if you were making a film in Britain, you could draw upon. For all those reasons, it makes a lot of sense for Hollywood companies to make films 
overseas. Um, there's a lot of production in Britain. Um, and Colombia in particular was very big on sort of supporting these uh, kind of international productions. So through producers like Sam Spiegel um, and particularly like Bridge on the River Kwai and Lawrence of Arabia, which Mark already mentioned, um, are backed by Colombia. Um, and I think this is another example of that and, and that um, particular interest in, in backing films that are deemed to have some kind of international appeal as well. And I think this film treads an interesting path of being simultaneously very British and concerned with these, you know, kind of the British Navy and its and its ways of doing things and particular protocols and conflicts, but also having this broader story to tell about this uh, big class conflict or this kind of conflict of um, these different male protagonists. I mean, it's worth saying it's a very male film. It's yeah. Interesting parallel to Lawrence of Arabia. You know, there's mm -hmm. this kind of interesting going back into an um, episode in uh, the kind of in Britain's military history, but also this kind of um, intense interest in male identity, male conflict, with the sadomasochistic edge as well that both films share um, and kind of make quite a lot of as well. Um, yeah, gratuitous yeah. shots of, of Johnny Briggs being being whipped and then yeah. and then, then recovering from it as as, as well. Power is um, uh, something that's uh, undercuts. Sorry, uh, underpins this entire uh, this, this 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 entire production. There's only one woman in it, isn't there? Joy Sheldon, and she's in one scene. In the first, yeah. in the in the in the in 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 the in the first two minutes. Aside from um, like some random, um, oh, random sorry. ladies of the night. So, at yeah, the that was. The, oh the yeah. Yes, yes. Yes. Yeah. Well. Pleading uh, wives. Yeah. Don't yeah. take my Their wives. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's that's that's, that's a brilliant line when he says when the midship, when Nigel Stark says to the says to the son, yeah, it's the crew having it's maybe their wives, and then <laughs> and then a a a, a wench. Uh, approaches him, he's like throw, he like throws her off, and it's that's that was that was a lovely delivered line. But then there's also that really disturbing bit in the morning. Uh, we ship all the women out in a big net, and then we ship the pigs in, and that's 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 deeply uncomfortable. But you get the impression that that they know what they're doing when they when they shoot when they shoot that. Yeah, so just in terms of, of, of thinking about the sort of the lone female protagonist, well, in, in the book actually, uh, um, there's there's a difference there. In, in Captain Crawford's wife dies in childbirth with the second child, oh. um, so she's not present in the book. There, but there is one female character in the book who's not in the film, um, and this is when they um, they take over the French ship. There's a French ambassador who has all Napoleon's secrets. This, this, that's quite a, a useful plot device. Um, yes. But he, in the book, he's married to an Italian woman. But with, this is through coercion. So she, she's not a willing wife. So this is just after Napoleon has um, subdued Italy or taken over Italy. Um, so in the book, she becomes uh, Crawford's um, uh, nurse, basically. And this is to stop um, Paget, who's the Dirk 
Bogart character um, essentially having his way with her. Um, and at the end of the book, they actually get married. Crawford, Captain Crawford and, um, and the Italian wife get married. So there's one significant female character in the book and it's not in the film. And there's a significant female character, well, sorry, an insignificant female character in, in the film that's not in the book, um, you know, which is very much in keeping, as, as you discussed, with, with the ship as a very homosocial space, um, you know, in which, as Mel said, the, the, these ideas of male identity, particularly male military or, or otherwise identity is, is explored, um, you know, within these uh, conflicts of class and, um, and duty. Uh, so, so yeah, sorry, I, I, I wanted to mention that because it, it's no, interesting it's... that both the both texts have one female character, but <laughs> you know, they're, they're um, again not unlike the 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 the, the workers aboard ship in the film that we see. Mm. Well, yeah, pretty marginal. <laughs> yes, mm. <laughs> but I'm thinking. I mean. We can't really go into detail on uh, the differences in, in who brings what to the script or the adaptation, but in terms of, say, the work environment in the stone tape, um, which is very much uh, um, uh, an expression of, of someone's power getting out of control and how um, Jill is used in, in that context. In the climax of Quatermass, Quatermass and the Pit, um, the explosion sort of of war, power and fury sort of divides sort of how like Rooney and Quatermass and how they, and that can, and it's, and, it, and Barbara's only role in, in that is to, is to use the encephalograph, is to see uh, the problem uh, yeah. and how they play most. And I'm thinking of a couple of, uh, he's Ladies' Night. And if you've seen Ladies' Night, which is a, um, a Nigel Neal uh, play from when they did uh, a TV series called Unnatural Causes, and it's set in um, a, a, a male, a gentleman's club, uh, and invited in to, um, it's, it, you're allowed sort of basically wives and girlfriends night once, once, once a month. And Fiona, uh, Fiona Shaw comes in and plays. Um, uh, I think Ron Pickup's wife, and then you and um, farce ensues, and they think they kill her. Uh, um, but it's it's all about um, how in, in this in this very male structure, um, no one knows what to do, and it's much better to follow. It's much better to follow a leader, even if that leader's an absolute idiot, uh, and it recreates sort of military. It recreates. As these as these people as these as these people would know it, and it's a very male defined space that bringing a woman into causes absolute chaos. I will realise the difficulties of working up a green crew in wartime, but as soon as possible, I would like you to go more easily with them. The first few weeks were inclined to use methods that none of us like. Are you questioning my methods? I haven't said so. I know the value of discipline as well as you do. Discipline is all that matters, sir. It's never all that matters, Mr. Scott Paget, but it can exist even rigidly in a happy ship. The ideal is always possible, sir, if the men cooperate. I'm sure they will. I'll give you a toast to Defiant, an efficient ship and a happy one. An efficient ship, sir, and death to the French. That rather depends on your gun drill. 
and it is that period as well when Dirk Bogard is trying to kind of extricate himself from being the kind of idol of the Odeons, the, the kind of uh, doctor in the house, Simon's yeah, 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 and he's trying to um, take on material that is that is more um, kind of challenging potentially mm. for his main uh, female fan base quite um, successfully um mm. over the next 10 years you know i was talking about this with john because i think of him as the guy from the serpent and the night porter which you could hardly call an easy watch really no and i think of him as the guy from the servant and Mindbenders is like yeah. things my go-to for but in 1962 he's known as the guy from the doctor films it's yeah it's, um, a this, mass this role where he's you know he's really unpleasant i think is part of that process of transition yeah. away from playing a kind of nice affable young man and, and yeah. playing these characters that are quite seedy repellent um, he, he is an difficult. asshole and he really is he, <laughs> he really his... is an asshole what's fantastic about his performance is that he's so incredibly controlled and stayed and solid but there's that sense that he could snap and do something terrible at any moment you there, know, is he just no, says... there is no redeeming feature about him no. as well it's fine when when his energy is directed say against the French and he's very successful in what he does as well and say, but like you, uh, he'd He'd kill the kid. He'd kill Murray Melvin. Like the, the idea that he's going to spare Murray Melvin. The, the oh, sorry, we do have. Uh, we've, we've forgotten the uh, the woman who pleads for a three day old marriage in the, in the in the first. So we do have another speaking role as well, and completely unmoved as 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 as, 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 as he, he would be. But yeah, there were no redeeming features, and I wondered. Uh, if you think to say something now, he's known for, really well known for like the servant, which again brings this idea of. Uh, a subordinate role taking over, uh, or not being, or at least very much not, not accepting his place. Now, you know, Edward Fox is probably sorry, James Fox is a weaker character than uh, than than Alec Guinness is. Than Alec Guinness is here, nonetheless, you see in that the, the person who will stop at nothing to get what they what they believe they deserve, and will utilize the the the, the current social structure to to almost destroy it. I wondered if that was when he was cast in, I don't know if he, was cast, if he made a fact when he was cast in the servant. The, the sense of see. entitlement in yeah. Dirk Bogard's character, the fact that he he is, I, th- I think I think he he's described as the illegitimate um, child of somebody very, very high up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, it doesn't. It's quite vague in the film. In yeah. the book, he's um, he's he's the illegit- illegitimate child of one of the Prince of Wales's mistresses. So that's why they talk about friends in high places, but they don't really uh, elaborate too much on it. So, you know, the, the provenance in the book is that he's, you know, he's from uh, royal stock, basically. Right. Right. And, well, and you can sort of see that. It's um, that sense that, like, you know, I should be running the ship. That, that's why I find it interesting in, in this film that the enemy is not the, the um you know that the upper class or you know the the one at the top of the tree it's not captain crawford he's a very benign um and and sympathetic character mm. you know it's the middleman um, and it's the same in billy budd it, it, again you you have peter usenoff plays devere this very benign captain who cares about his underlings it's the sadistic master at arms so there's a suggestion in in, in you know in both those films that, that have very similar um you know, obviously similar settings, but also similar storylines, um, 
that it that it's actually the middleman. It's not people at the top who are the enemy. It's people in the middle who are maybe abusing their position or or, or the kind of aspirants, middle classes or 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 or, or, or whatever. The so that, that all, you know, and I and I wonder if that um also chimes with you know the historical moment in which those films were made i i always think about um saturday night and sunday morning you know where arthur seaton talks about the bastards grinding you down it's not the owners necessarily it's it's the people who are in charge of them it's the foreman it's the you know, it's the people who is immediate superior who are the who's, who's the is... who's the senior marine in this isn't he yeah, Brian Pringle. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's it's so interesting, actually. I mean, in terms of the casting, obviously you've got the Alec Guinness and and Dirk Bogard sort of central struggle going on, and then you've got Anthony Quayle as well as a sort of key player. But looking at some of the supporting players, you've got you've got Brian Pringle, who's in Saturday Night Sunday Morning, and and some other of those new wave films. You've got Murray Melvin, fresh from A Taste of Honey. You've got Tom Bell, you've got Johnny Briggs, you've got Ray Brooks. So you've got um, that kind of a group of actors associated with this other kind of cinema and theatre and television that's very much about class, but also very much yeah. about the present moment in British society. And it's it's very interesting to see those actors that, we probably associate at that time more with kind of contemporary roles being placed into this yeah. historical Vic, framework. Vic, Victor yeah. Madden, you're thinking as well as well. Is that then a way of saying, I think that in the way that, you know, the, um, that something like the Peasants' Revolt was never about, oh, we, we don't hate the king, it's just the king's advisors. It's, it's painting the, the absolute authority figure, or if you like, the state, as not the bad thing it's the it's the it's the, as you say the aspirational the, the slightly below because to basically say is i think with there's andre marianne's character that i'm a revolutionary too and it's no that's bad you yeah. you, you you killed the state if you like and like steady on this is a british revolution we don't yes. we don't want to we don't want to go too far um, yeah. yeah we'll organize a petition but yes. <laughs> Well, you know, yeah, the suggestion, 1848, again, I say. <laughs> it's like it's like George Orwell said, you know, that, that, that you know, as soon as you, the, the, you know, an Englishman is met with a foreigner, you know, the petty complaints between each other suddenly dissipate. Mm. Um, and it's, it's again, it's interesting that, that again, I keep mentioning Billy Budd just because I think, you know, it's such a, an interesting comparison of a film that came out at the same time um, in both of those films. Um, I think the idea of revolution is seen as, as as something foreign you know there's as you say there's a very british way of doing things there's petitions there's certain things and we don't go for the top we go for the the enforcers the attack dogs you know who are making our lives really difficult and again in both examples the status quo if you like is restored by um an engagement with the enemy yeah. with with the french um and that seems to 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 return everything to a to a, a stable equilibrium, you know. So and I and I think that's again, as you say, that's very instructive of, of the British element of it. You know, you know, to, to have a violent revolution isn't the way we do things, old chap. You know, even if we we we're, we're discontent, you know. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, films films about 
about ships are all British films about ships are always films about the British class society, you know, because of that perfect sort of stratified system of the different decks and different layers of society, uh, you know, from in which we serve onwards, really. Um, if you want to think about a certain kind of perspective on British society, then a naval film is a wonderful way of doing that because mm. although a very masculine way of doing that usually. I mean, military films in general, I mean, I think particularly of the TV series Sharp, obviously, which Nigel Neal did actually write an episode of later on, but whatever. But what's great about naval ships, like you said, is the fact that they're enclosed. They're a bottle. It's, it's class in a bottle, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's in a bottle with class in it. And, yeah. and you've all got to get along or not get along or you know there's com there's plenty of scope for conflict which of course yes. is the driver for all drama so stick a load of disparate people in a confined space together and see what ensues um that's always going to work and it seems to make a point i think through murray melvin's character that there's nothing the working class hate more than one of them trying to better themselves away from the working class. And he presents himself as, as an aristo and is shown up by, uh, by, by, by Bogard. And it basically said he's a, you know, he's a clerk, but he's a clerk uh, who has aspirations to be, to, to, to be a lawyer, to raise himself. And like, he's like, I'm not like them. There's a, there, there's a mistake, which once you're at sea is probably a bad way to ingratiate yourself with your, with your, with your, with your, with your, with your fellow press gang. With your fellow but press then, gang. but then his his legal nouse is also yes, useful is, is as well. So he, you know, he has his his sort of learned qualities have their uses as well. Oh yes, but anyone who's like uh, who's been bullied at school for sounding too posh and looking, uh, you know, and uh, seeming too clever in classes, but also has people come to them when they, uh, you know, when they when they need help. Sorry, I've just shared a bit much then. <laughs> <laughs> God. Yeah. So, that, that, yeah. Just to go on from that as well. So, so you you have um, Murray Melvin as, as Wagstaff is in the film. In, in the book, he's called Stanhope, and there's a slightly there's a slightly more incestuous relationship he has with um, uh, with Jackson, the 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 admiral. Uh, but I won't go into. But what what you've also got in in connection with that is is the two ringleaders. So you have um, Anthony Quayle as Vizard, who's this very kind of upstanding. Um, uh, and again, he's not in the book um, necessarily, but in the film, I think you know, with Anthony Crowley, oh, he kind of had to be. Um, yeah. And in both the book and the film, his his uh, his partner in crime is Evans, who's very much seen to be the bad egg or the, you know the bad apple. Yeah. And the suggestion is that, 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 that these um, these grievances, you know, would uh, would be fine if it wasn't for one bad apple. <laughs> They're the ones who ruin it, you know, and I think, again, that, that feeds into this idea is that we can all get back afterwards. There won't be a violent revolution. We'll, we'll get back to our stations, you know. Um, and it's explicitly said as well. He did explicitly say it in those words when Evans finally gets his revenge on Scott Padgett. You know, he does actually say you've ruined it for everybody. You, you yeah, and then he the kills him. <laughs> yeah, and then he kills him. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which then he said that makes you as bad as him. And then to prove a point, kills him. So with... Um, you say there was generally a positive reaction to this film, Melanie? You said, but if, even if it was split, that oh, apparently only men yeah. liked it because it was a bit... Um, looking at the sort of um, Kinney Weekly rankings, um, which kind of did a, a 
roundup of the domestic box office at the end of the year. Um, it comes it comes very near the top. It's sort of ninth for the year. So in front of it, you've got the Guns of Navarone, uh, the Young Ones, Doctor No, Only Two Can Play, the Peter Sellers sex comedy, uh, the Road to Hong Kong, and then you've got HMS Defiant. So it's it's certainly a, a very popular and successful mm. film of its year. Um, it's interesting as well that the tenth film is the Pirates of Blood River. So it does look like there was a bit of a, a sort of interest in tall ships all of a sudden. A sort is, that, of is, that the, is that the Hammer film? That's the yeah. Hammer one. The yeah. Film, yeah. Yeah. Now, Show Magazine, which is American, again they they talk about it being slightly crudely directed, um, whereas other um, other magazines uh, talk about how pictorially elegant it is. So the use of Cinemascope and Eastman Colour uh, was certainly uh, something that, that, that would make this a spectacle. Um, but just interestingly, Film Bulletin, um, so Harrison's report, which again is another uh, uh, trade press mainly, I think is that's right, Mel? Mm. Yeah. Um, so they suggested that the, the, the skeins of the plot pattern stretch themselves rather thin, uh, giving the tale an element of confusion. So there's a suggestion there that that, um, that it was something of an unwieldy adaptation. The film bulletin goes slightly further and says, uh, what keeps the film from rising to a high quality level is the failure of scripters Nigel Neal and Edmund North to probe beneath the surface of Guinness, the defiance tough but uh, reform conscious commander, and Dirk Bogard, uh, her wily sadistic first lieutenant, uh, lieutenant. So, in those regards, uh, certainly Nigel Neal didn't get much stock from uh, from his role, whatever it may have been, um, you know, in the final adaptation. So, again, so, so from from a Neil perspective, this 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 was something that that, that was maybe treated uh, as a failure in some regards. That's interesting. interesting. It's interesting because you know, within uh, the confines of this film, the character we know all we need to know about the characters of, of Alan Guinness and, 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 and Dirk Bogart play, their representations of, you know, as we've discussed, either of, of both masculine power and um, uh, the roles of the state and the bourgeoisie. And the, uh, but I thought it was really well layered. I thought there's, there's uh, this great scene setting, um, there's great spectacle in the opening of this, which, which, which grabs you. The, um, the uh, scenes at the early on in the in the tavern that's being pressed uh, with the, with the plotters uh, it's is is really is really well. So I think ha Howard said to me when he when he when he first watched it that it's you know you can see all the pawns being set up. Sorry, Howard, did you mm. want to come in? I, I, I what I was trying to think. This makes me think actually because um, Melanie pointed out the list, the top ten list of films um, of that year, and this is a film that is made at the same time as Doctor No. And the young ones, which are three very different films, but you put this next to Doctor No, right? And in terms of the style of it, the graphic style of the credits and things like that, and you asked which of these films was made first, you know, to someone who perhaps knew a bit about film but didn't know what year HMS Defiant was made in, you know, people would think that HMS Defiant was 
you know, I, I, I looked at Asian Mystery, it looks like something that could have been made in the 50s until you actually get to the performances and acting and dialogue and scripts, which is very much forward thinking in the ways that it goes forward. You've got this film that looks like a very classic old fashioned um, tall ships and broadsides movie. And yet you have these very subtle character motivations. You've got very naturalistic dialogue. You've got characters who say an awful lot in very, very few words, which is what Nigel Neal's really good at. I mean, my, I think my favourite line in the film is where Dirk Bogard issues the immortal threat, I'll take a look at your backbone. Between the, You know the motivation of Scott Padgett. You see both the strengths and weaknesses of the captain. Um, you see the fact that the captain is smart enough to know that something's going on is simply through the fact that that a man threatened, a man given lashes says something that he's not expecting him to say. And he, you know, puts the pieces together. He knows what's going on, but can't yeah. act on it. it it's, it's all beautifully set up. Mm. No, I think it's very opinion. minimally set up and set up in a way that is not the sort of thing that one might expect from a broadsides and tall ships movie. No, and I think the um, say when you when you watch say the title sequences, uh, hmm. that's because this is a historical, uh, and Doctor No is a is a technologically advanced film. Spy uh, Yes, I think, think they had the same editor actually, Peter Hunt, who edited um, HMS Defiant. Um, certainly was one of the main editors on on the Bond films, and I think he edits the first one, uh, Doctor No, as well. So, it does and was, thing, isn't it? And was associated with a certain kind of very dynamic cutting mm. where you didn't hang about, you got on with it, um, which helps sort of propel the Bond films. I think in terms of them being action films, so it's interesting to see to see him also editing this film as well. Although yeah. I think it, it does have a slightly more stately pace because of the genre that it's, yeah, it's yeah. working with. But and yeah. They do, they, they do a sail ship chase, not a car chase, which is, you know, yeah, you're stuck, stuck, with, stuck, stuck, <laughs> with, stuck with, the, with the limitations. But at the same time, the dialogue says more than it says, which is kind of the gold standard, really. I, I think to, to sort of pick up on that, one of the things that I think is interesting about this film but more broadly about this period in British cinema also British culture more generally is it's it's such a sort of fulcrum it's such a moment of change and transition when the kind of post-war way of doing things particularly around deference and a particular kind of attitude to class and knowing your place is beginning to disintegrate or be sort of troubled in certain ways. But we're this close to the Beatles. Yeah, we're just ahead of it. And we're just ahead of the year that Philip Larkin said sexual intercourse began. We're just yeah. ahead of Profumo. Um, that's all just a little further down the line. And you've had things like the, the British New Wave films and, and you've had rock and roll you know blue hawaii is one of the other big hit films of this year so we've got elvis musicals bubbling away in the background now he's come out of the army um 
So we've begun to see some of these things in things like Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, which is the top film a few years previously. Um, but they've not affected that complete shift. And in, indeed, you know, you could argue that that doesn't really happen until much later on in the 60s. But, but mm. if you're thinking about watershed years, 63 is often seen as one of those tipping points. And this film comes just before that. And I think it, it's sort of got its feet in both camps, both the sort of residual stuff from the 50s and what's just around the corner in the 60s. And it, it's it's full of that kind of, sort yeah. of contradiction, really. And stuff bubbling under the surface as well. Um, and, and it's, all you know, it, it is also the time that the mods and rockers are fighting um, you know, on the beaches. So that there's all these folk panics about youth, um, you know, already sort of occurring. Um, so it's, you know, it's interesting you get a, a few films that have these kind of uh, flashpoints of, of mutiny or subversion, um, but in a safe historical setting, uh, you know, which helps to distance that, you know, as well. And in 63, Woodfall are going to move from things like Saturday Night and Sunday Morning and A Taste of Funny into historical films with Tom Jones, which then wins lots of Oscars. And um, But it's a very different approach to the historical film. So that sense that you can, you can make films set in the past, but they can be very intensely to do with the contemporary mm. um, is also, you know, just around the corner as well. So it's not just films like Dr. No or Saturday Night and Sunday Morning that are important, um, but also different ways of looking at history and kind of mobilising the past in as a sort of exciting, youthful place and not just a sort of staid Sunday tea time serial kind of place. And I think that one of the things that's so interesting about the, about the industry in the 60s is not only that you get lots of new people involved but also what the people who were already established filmmakers actors then go on to do in this different climate where new things are possible so someone like Lewis Gilbert's career is so fascinating you go from you know staple war film stuff you know in the 50s and absolutely epitomizing that being the most popular form to yeah being able to move with the times and, and make something like Alfie um, and, and then did, go on to do other things like Shirley Valentine and yes, Rita later on so he, and he's, he's a fantastic three, shapeshifter yeah. as a filmmaker and what three James Bond films yeah yeah yep. so he's entangled with that as well um, a very yeah very versatile filmmaker and, and this was a film sorry, sorry. Yeah. no no I was going just to add, just from my maritime section, <laughs> you know, also a filmmaker who who was very comfortable in, uh, you know, making films about uh, about the sea. So he'd made, so he obviously did uh, Sink the Bismarck, but before that he'd done um, Albert R.N., another World War II naval yeah. drama, and he'd also done The Sea Shall Not Have Them. Um, and, and interesting, his his James Bond films, you know, had, had very much a, a maritime bent to them. So, so mm -hmm. um, uh, um, Spy Who Loved Me, you know, that's all about this international uh, sort of villain, you know, on the high seas. And um, is it You Only Live Twice? Is that, is that... He did You Only Live Twice. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's one of those few films that remind people that, that, that James Bond was a naval 
man you know he was right, a yeah, yeah. naval intelligence naval commander um so there there was also a strain in, in his filmmaking that you, you could say that he was um, you know something of the uh, a specialty in marine based films um and that's possibly more of interest to me than it is to others but uh, you know that that you know i think there's a sense that you know when he was making hms to five for example that you, this is someone in safe hands they know how to because one of the reasons you know why there weren't so many naval dramas is because they were very expensive to make they were very difficult to make um it was very difficult to get hold of naval vessels that that that, that could replicate the time especially uh, working um vessels that you could film upon um which is why that sort of goes into television in the 1970s so stuff like the Eden line and, and and voyager charles darwin you know that they, they spent lots of money retrofitting or trying to find old old vessels that that, that could recreate that time period but also the, the practicalities of filming at sea were, were something of a nightmare then i suppose we forget in the cgi era because you're thinking about a constantly shifting horizon um ships move about other ships come into into view um you know the the, the camera has to be protected from salt water and all, and all of these things so you know some someone in charge of these type of films had to have some experience of doing it so you know i think in terms of lewis gilbert and his um you know his his involvement with this film um you know has very much to do with his experience there but also i think um if, if i don't go on too much <laughs> uh, you know i think that there's a certain um authenticity related to you know the people who are involved in this film so most of them had um, served in world war ii uh, so lewis gilbert was in the fleet air arm so he, he was in the film department there um alec guinness had served in the navy anthony quayle uh, likewise and not just you know were, were these people that you know have, have served in the military so that so they had that mindset that, that a lot of people maybe don't have now you know, people serving in the Navy was something of an everyday experience, you know, back in the early 60s. But that was something that was quickly changing uh, with circumstances and with the uh, the abolition of national service. Um, and people like um, uh, the producer as well, you know, they, they came from these backgrounds of, uh, of kind of not, not just aristocratic um, sort of heritage but also you know those people who would go into the officer class and you know once they were demobbed they would go in get a job at the bbc old chap you know so you know, there's certain mm. sort of underlying elements i think you know within these type of films that that that, uh, that, that again tell us a lot about um about the time period but also about the the kind of wider um makeup of british society but yeah in 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 the original novel again um there's a point in the film in which um, uh, Paget basically runs riot, doesn't he? So he, you know, his uh, his sadism reaches fever pitch. Yeah. Now, in in the novel, this is this is explained um, because he was sexually frustrated because he couldn't have his way with uh, with Maria, this the, the the Italian woman who who then tends to Crawford. Um, so it, it's quite clear that his sadism is uh, an expression of his sexual uh, frustration. Um, um, (laughs) There's also a very interesting phrase that actually is in in the book, and I don't know if I can find it now. Um, 
in, in which Tilsley actually um, quite blatantly says that um, an obsession with flagellation or i.e. kind of excess punishment is basically a smokescreen uh, for um, homosexual desire. Now, this is something that is very much, uh, you know, in, in Billy Budd. And I think, you know, again, thinking, you know, reading between the lines and thinking about the, the, the people who are involved in um, Billy Budd, uh, sorry, in, in HMS Defiant, um, there, there's definitely um, a, an undercurrent of, of a kind of homosexual desire or, um, uh, you know, repressed homosexual desire. Um, it's such a rich sort of queer text and the, the looks between some of the characters and Dirk Bogard's kind of, he's almost like smacking his lips when mm. you know, there's, a, there's a lashing going on. Well, Tom, Tom Bell's enjoying it so yeah. much. Yeah. Tom Bell's desire to maintain eye contact with with Dirk Bogard as he's as he's about to be whipped um, is 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 telling. On the one hand, you can just see it for I'm you know you're doing this and I know you're you're not going to break me. Uh, but on but the it other, it is also sort of gay. Yeah. But also Murray Melvin as well, and and again, sort of knowing sort of both intertextually in terms of the role he played within A Taste of Honey. Uh, which I think was before, wasn't it, Mel? Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Um, and also, sort of, you know, retroactively knowing that, you know, that a bit like Dirk Bogard, you know, he was someone who, who at that stage couldn't come out as being gay. But um, in Taste of Honey, he he plays a homosexual, doesn't oh, he? Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, he, and, and Bogard specific. had been in victim by this point. Yeah, that's, well. that's so yeah. there's yeah. so there's a. But yeah, you know, homosexuality is still illegal when this film is yeah. being made, isn't it? Yes, yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. And I think you know he's it, it, the character of Wagstaff that, that Melvin plays. You know, I think he was very much chosen for the role not just because of his his kind of slight physicality, um, but also I think because he represented a kind of very uh, I suppose the term that you would use at the time is effect, to, uh, you know, form of um, metropolitan masculinity. You know that, that that was very much juxtaposed against you know the rough and tough um, you know sort of uh, you know masculine naval uh, character, which which again itself you know we, we can then sort of go back and read as uh, you know as, as as having alternate you know meanings or, or readings. Mm. He's well. stripped. He's stripped to the waist, isn't he? And has water thrown over him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, I mean, there's so much. Like I said, that I think on this thread we could possibly do another podcast. Yeah. So I didn't, I didn't want to talk too much. No, about no, no, that, that's that, but, but it's, it's definitely a, there. You know. Yeah, yeah. It's. A, I, I still wonder slightly uncomfortably, and again, maybe I'm overcompensating and trying to read too much into it. Whether you have to uh, cad, uh, cadge, uh, sort of gay subtext or queer subtext with something like BDSM, whether you're having to say this, this is perverted. This is. I mean, kink shaming is hard as well, but in terms of there's something wrong with 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 presenting this. This is not. This is literally a perversion. This is not. This is this is not normal, which sits potentially uncomfortably with the with with, with the community. But but maybe a, also you're limited in what how you can represent these things on a naval yeah. ship. But then so it's yeah. But again, you know, you know, this is something that that that, that, that obviously at the time that you know that that was something that you couldn't speak about or think about and you know no. and, and one of the reasons you know uh, one of the reasons for you know you 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 um deliberately put put you know you create this all-male environment um uh, well you do i mean i suppose in the yeah. case of you know prison dramas school yeah. you know you know you have to you know a, a male environment where yeah. uh 
in that final bit then is there anything you guys would like to plug hmm. oh god i need to <laughs> i need to i need to finish some work before i can plug it um well there is hang on there is your essay in this book uh, oh mine yeah <laughs> yes. yes i i co-edited this this book which you, is uh, do you want to say what it is? This is, yes, this is, I, a purely, this is purely audio. Yes, so I, know, I, was just, I know. I was just showing. This <laughs> okay. you, not everybody. Um, yeah, so I co-edited a book called 60s British Cinema Reconsidered. Um, prior to that, I uh, co-wrote a book on British 60s cinema, with both of which mention HMS Defiant as well as other Nigel Neal-involved productions. Um, but in the latter book, um, 60s British cinema reconsidered. Mark has a brilliant essay on naval films from the 1960s, so that's well worth a read. And one day I'll finish my book on A Taste of Honey, and that will be available as well. Is that one? Of, that's for the BFI Classics range. That's the BFI yeah, Classics, classics one. Yeah. Nearly there. We will put links uh, to those books uh, on our on our on our on our show notes. Mark, is anything else you wanted to? Uh, just no, I, 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 these are going to be very niche. Um, so this, is a, this, is, this is a Nigel Neal podcast. <laughs> <It's Dunkart>. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, niche, then let me scale it down even further to certain regions of the UK. So um, I've recently published a book on uh, Norfolk film history. Oh, my God. Cool. And that's called Celluloid Tales, and you, that's available on Amazon. Um, and also another one about the Kent uh, film industry or the history of... Um, uh, of, of film through Kent um, and that's called Invicta Wood and that's also available uh, on Amazon so if there's anyone from those regions who, who, who want to know more about film history then you could do worse than those. <laughs> thank you uh, and Mark, Melanie thank you both very much. Our thanks to Melanie and Mark for their time and their insights. I hope you enjoyed that. If you enjoyed Birdcast, please do leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We don't have a Patreon or Ko-fi or anything like that. These are entirely self-funded events. So anything you can do to raise our profile is deeply, deeply appreciated. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you soon. Bye-bye.